Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Tuesday, October 31st, uh, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, we'll have dispatches on the recently disclosed report uh, by the State of Israel for the massive displacement of Palestinians reminiscent of the Nakba of 75 years ago in 1948. There has been a bombing by the Israeli Defense Forces at the Jabalia refugee camp in Gaza. We'll have details on that as well. Yemen resistance forces say they have fired rockets towards Israel in recent days. And fierce fighting is taking place between the IDF and resistance forces inside of northern Gaza. In the second and third hours, we listen to a panel discussion put together uh, by Electronic Intifada, uh, one of the best sources on developments in Palestine, particularly in Gaza. Uh, this uh, panel discussion will be examining the details of the humanitarian and security crisis in Gaza and in other areas across uh, the occupied Palestinian territories. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the voice and music of North Africa, Egypt in particular, uh, the voice of Um Kaltoum uh, with a opera uh, that was uh, performed live entitled Ya Masahani. Let's listen in. Thank you. 
Yeah. 
You can read uh, this entire report uh, over uh, the Pan-African Newswire. In other reports, uh, Israel carried out a new horrific massacre in Jabalia in the northern Gaza Strip, which left hundreds killed and wounded. That's according to a report uh, from Palestine Chronicle. The Palestinian Ministry of Health said on earlier today that uh, the Israeli army committed a new horrific massacre in Jabalia in the northern Gaza Strip, leaving hundreds killed and wounded, Al Jazeera reported. On Tuesday afternoon, Israeli forces bombed a residential neighborhood adjacent to the Indonesian hospital in Jabalia. The ministry indicated that, according to a preliminary estimation, there were 400 casualties, including killed and wounded. The number, however, may be higher because the area that was bombed uh, was densely populated, according uh, to the ministry. In an interview with Al Jazeera, the ministry's spokesman described the situation in the hospital as catastrophic, noting that the largest number of victims were children and women. According to Al Jazeera, the director of the Indonesian hospital said that the victims suffered burns and deformities that show that the occupation used internationally prohibited weapons in the bombing, noting that the hospital will stop working completely tomorrow evening due to a lack of fuel. The Interior Ministry in Gaza said that the Jabalia camp uh, was bombed with six bombs, each weighing a ton of explosives, and that Israel destroyed a residential neighborhood in the center of the camp. Israel has thus far killed 8,500 Palestinians in Gaza, including 3,457 children and wounded more than 23,000 people. Palestinians' Ministry of Health reports and international organizations say that the majority of those killed and wounded are women and children. Gaza has been under a tight Israeli security siege since 2007. Following a de democratic election in, in occupied Palestine, the results of which were rejected by Tel Aviv along with Washington. You're listening uh, to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, uh, Yahi Sari, military spokesman for Yemen's Ansarullah group, uh, said in a video on Tuesday that the group claimed responsibility for the launch of missiles and drones at Israeli targets. The group also threatened to carry out more strikes until the Israeli aggression stops. We are driven by a sense of religious, moral, human, and national responsibility, as well as the demands of free peoples and our duty to support our oppressed brothers in Gaza, the Yemeni armed forces had no choice but to fulfill their duty, placing their trust in God in support of the historical injustices suffered by the beloved Palestinian people. Sari said this on a video. He went on to say that our armed forces have launched a significant batch of ballistic and cruise missiles, along with a large number of drones, targeting various Israeli enemy locations in the occupied territories. But he continued, adding that this is the third operation in solidarity with our oppressed brothers in Palestine. We affirm their commitment to continue executing more precision strikes with missiles and drones until the Israeli aggression stops. We emphasize that the Yemeni people's stance on the Palestinian issue is firm and principled, and that the Palestinian people have the full right to self-defense and to attain their legitimate rights in full. And uh, finally, uh, there's been reports of intense fighting uh, with the 
entering of the uh, Gaza Strip by the Israeli Defense Forces. A spokesman for the Palestinian Ministry of Health in Gaza pleaded with Egypt to open the Rafah crossing to allow urgent medical supplies and a safe exit for thousands of wounded Palestinians. The appeal was made against a backdrop of continued Israeli massacres that have reached hundreds of families across the Gaza Strip. Israeli forces continued their attempt to penetrate Gaza from various directions to no avail. Meanwhile, Palestinian and Lebanese resistance continues. Now, Jabalia camp, as we mentioned earlier, was bombed with six bombs, each weighing a ton of explosives. The initial number of victims of the Jabalia camp massacred is an estimated at 400 people, including martyrs, as long, uh, along with uh, wounded. Also, we were unable to count the killed and wounded in the massacre in the Jabalia camp. That's according to the director of the Indonesian hospital. And uh, the Gaza Health Ministry spokesman uh, said once again that a horrific massacre in Jabalia and the number of victims may nearly uh, be as many as the number of victims at the Akli Baptist Hospital. The NATO Secretary General, John Stolenberg, said it was important that the Gaza war does not expand, and that Israel's response to Hamas's attacks must adhere to international law. Now, Yahya Sari, as we had mentioned earlier, the military spokesman for the Ansarullah, said that they launched missiles and drones at targets inside uh, the state of Israel. In regard to Al Jazeera, the network's websites uh, and operating systems are subject to electronic hacking attempts aimed at disrupting publishing as well as broadcasting systems. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding uh, this segment uh, of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can be abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Tuesday, October 31st, uh, 2023, go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
hearts that you see Marching to the fields of Concord Looks like handsome Johnny with a flint block in his hand Marching to the Concord War Hey, marching to the Concord War Hey, look beyond and tell me what you see Marching to the fields of Gettysburg Looks like handsome Johnny with a musket in his hand Marching to the Gettysburg War Marching to the Gettysburg War yeah. Hey, look yonder, tell me what you see Marching to the fields of Dunkirk Looks like handsome Johnny with a carbine in his hand Marching to the Dunkirk War Hey, marching to the Dunkirk War Hey, look yonder, tell me what you see Marching to the fields of Korea like handsome Johnny with an M1 in his hand Marching to the Korean War Hey, marching to the Korean War Marching to the Birmingham War 
into the Birmingham war. Hey, what's the use of singing this song? Some of you are not even listening. Tell me what it is we've got to do. Wait for our peels to start listening. Hey, wait for the bullets to start whistling. Here comes a hydrogen bomb. And here comes a guided zone. Here comes a hydrogen bomb. I can almost hear it with all. I can almost hear it with all. Hey, yeah, 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 yeah. That was the music of Richie Havens uh, with the track entitled Handsome Johnny. And uh, Richie Havens uh, recorded that uh, live at the Bitter End uh, in 1967. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Tuesday, October 31st, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to go to a panel discussion uh, that uh, was organized by the Electronic Intifada News Agency, uh, one of the best sources uh, on uh, the situation in Palestine. Gaza, the siege on Gaza has, of course, attracted worldwide attention. Billions of people have spoken out, held rallies, and demonstrated uh, all across the planet, uh, from Australia and New Zealand, all through Asia, Africa, Europe the United Kingdom, North America, and Latin America. Let's listen to this report um, that uh, examines uh, some of the details of what has been happening uh, in uh, the siege of Gaza that is supported, backed up, and facilitated by uh, the United States uh, government. Uh, Let's listen in. Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada uh, for our live stream uh, today, Monday, October 30th. Uh, I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, Associate Editor at the Electronic Intifada, along with my colleagues Asa Wynn-Stanley and John Elmer. Uh, We have a very full show today, lots of analysis on uh, what we've seen over the weekend, um, including the Uh, internet and communications blackout, uh, which seems to have um, happened yet again today, um, as well as uh, what the um, preliminary stages of uh, what Israel is calling its ground invasion um, is is looking like. Um, So please stay tuned. Uh, Really good show, as always. for you, and uh, with that, our executive director, Ali Abunima, with his opening remarks. Ali. Thanks, Nora. On Friday, Israel cut all internet, mobile, and landline communications to and from and within 
the Gaza Strip. Under the cover of this darkness, Israel escalated its atrocities against the population. No one outside Gaza could learn the fate of their friends or family. No one inside could call for help. Ambulance crews, the bravest of the brave, could not be dispatched to try to rescue people from under the rubble of their homes, destroyed by American bombs. After the connection started to be partially restored on Sunday, we learned from the Wall Street Journal that it was the United States government that had instructed Israel to turn the internet and phone network in Gaza back on. What does this tell us? It's a stark confirmation that every Israeli decision in this genocidal extermination campaign against Palestinian civilians in Gaza is actually an American decision made in Washington. Just as Joe Biden's officials could tell Israel to turn the internet on, they could also tell Israel to stop the bombing, to stop the slaughter of Palestinian civilians whose toll has now exceeded 8,000 people almost half of them children. Israel cannot carry out this slaughter without American permission and approval. Were it not for the massive airlift ordered by Biden, Israel would by now have run out of bombs. Each and every one of us must recognize this. Yes, it is Israelis pulling the trigger, but it is Washington that is giving the orders and support. But slaughtering Palestinians is not the Biden administration's only goal. Even for people this psychopathic, bloodthirsty, and cruel, murdering the entire population of 2.3 million people in Gaza might be a step too far, or at least I would hope so, given that this is the same political class that thought killing 500,000 Iraqi children with the Clinton administration sanctions was worth it to achieve America's imperial goals in the region. The real goal of this attack on Gaza, and one the Israelis themselves don't try to hide, is the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian population and the completion of the Nakba of 1948. On Saturday, Dawn, Democracy in the Arab World Now, a group founded by murdered Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, warned that the Biden administration is tacitly assisting these plans by asking Congress for supposed humanitarian aid funding that would help Palestinians displaced from Gaza to neighboring countries. Dawn notes that Israeli actions, statements, and directives all push in the direction of ethnic cleansing, including a leaked policy document drafted by the Israeli intelligence ministry that recommends the permanent forced transfer of Palestinians in Gaza to Sinai. The Biden administration isn't just giving a green light for ethnic cleansing, it's bankrolling it, said Sarah Lee Whitson, Dawn's executive director. Gaslighting Americans into facilitating long-held Israeli plans to depopulate Gaza under the cover of humanitarian aid is a cruel and grotesque hoax, uh, Whitson said. I can only agree with that and warn once again that the charade of providing humanitarian aid through the Rafah crossing is a distraction. The amount of supplies flowing through remains a tiny, insignificant trickle and cannot mitigate the enormous humanitarian catastrophe deliberately being inflicted by Israel 
and the United States by cutting off water, food, fuel, and medicine. The way to help Palestinians in Gaza is an immediate ceasefire and an end to the Israeli biological warfare against 2.3 million people. Because biological warfare is what it is when you deliberately subject civilians to starvation, dehydration, a lack of sanitation amid forced displacement and incessant indiscriminate bombing. According to the UN, water consumption in Gaza has plunged by 92%. How, can, how long can life go on like that? And on Sunday, the United Nations reported that hospitals are facing unprecedented levels of devastation, primarily driven by the overwhelming number of injuries, critical shortages of vital resources, and concerns of being targeted by airstrikes. Over the last 24 hours, uh, Israel bombed the vicinity of Al-Quds Hospital in the north of Gaza, affecting staff, patients, and 14,000 internally displaced people. In the same period, residential buildings near the Indonesian hospital in Beit Lahia and Shifa Hospital in Gaza City were hit, also by airstrikes. Today, Israeli bombing caused severe damage and terror at the Turkish Friendship Hospital, which treats cancer patients in Gaza. I would not be surprised if that was Israel's deliberate response to the Turkish president's condemnation of its genocidal crimes. In one welcome and important development, Karim Khan, the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, made an unannounced visit to the Rafah crossing on the Egypt-Gaza border on Sunday. There and in Cairo, he made his first significant comments about the situation in Palestine since the 7th of October, and indeed since he came to office. Khan, who jumps whenever the Americans tell him to when it comes to investigating alleged war crimes in Ukraine, has been dragging his feet on the court's investigation of crimes in Palestine that formally began more than two years ago. Khan said, we have active investigations ongoing in relation to the crimes allegedly committed in Israel on 7 October, and also in relation to Gaza and the West Bank, and our jurisdiction goes back to 2014. The prosecutor warned, and I think this is probably the most important thing he said, that blocking the delivery of humanitarian supplies to Gaza, as Israel is doing, may constitute a war crime. He said that Israel must make discernible efforts without further delay to make sure civilians receive basic foods and medicine. Lawyers for Palestinian Human Rights, an organization based in the UK, said that by making these comments, Khan properly carried out his responsibility to deter apparent violations by providing a public warning to the parties to the conflict. That may be correct, but Khan has dragged his feet for years, and even though a preventive statement is necessary and welcome, it is not enough. Khan has more than enough evidence to issue indictments and arrest warrants for Israeli leaders based on their genocidal statements and actions, and he must do so. What more evidence is needed? The UK charity Save the Children said on Sunday that the number of children reported killed in Gaza in just three weeks 
has surpassed the annual number of children killed across all the world's conflict zones since 2019. I cannot but recall bitterly that just a few months ago, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres acknowledged that the Israeli army is one of the world's worst abusers of children's rights. Yet despite this, and in defiance of the recommendation of his experts, Guterres refused to add Israel to the UN's so-called list of shame, a list of the groups or entities that are most violent towards children in armed conflict zones. For years, Guterres has employed a double standard by listing some parties on his list, list of shame while omitting others that have often committed far more violations, Human Rights Watch said at the time. And I wrote that by keeping Israel off the list, the UN chief was sending a clear message to Tel Aviv that it could continue killing Palestinian children with impunity. And here we are. I mention this to emphasize that it is the impunity that Israel enjoys due to the willful inaction and complicity of people like Khan and Guterres and many others in the so-called international community that has given Israel the confidence that it can openly butcher thousands of people before the eyes of the world without any fear of consequences. It's time for that to change. And the only way it will is when Israel faces con consequences through boycotts, sanctions, arms embargoes, and indictments, as well as through the legitimate resistance of the Palestinian people. And for that to happen, all of us need to keep up the pressure in every way we can, especially by continuing to protest. I want to leave you with the words of three prominent Palestinian human rights groups, Al-Haq, Al-Mizan, and the Palestinian Center for Human Rights. They say, the looming mass ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in Gaza requires immediate intervention. It must also be recalled that more than three quarters of Gaza's populations are refugees to whom Israel, the occupying power, has denied the right of return to their homes and lands since 1948. Seven decades on, the international community continues to fail to realize the right of return to millions of Palestinian refugees explicitly recognized under the United Nations General Assembly Resolution 194. The atrocities we are currently witnessing in Gaza, including genocidal acts, will haunt humanity for decades to come. Our organizations renew their call to the international community for an immediate ceasefire. This must be accompanied by the unimpeded entry of fuel and humanitarian aid, including water, food, and medical supplies to be distributed throughout the entire Gaza Strip to alleviate the ongoing humanitarian catastrophe caused by Israeli policies of collective punishment against Gaza's civilian population. These atrocities must not only end, they must never happen again. The international community must ensure that Israel's settler colonial apartheid regime is dismantled, that all discriminatory and dehumanizing laws and policies and practices against the Palestinian people are rescinded in full, that Israel immediately and unconditionally withdraw from the occupied Palestinian territory, and that the Palestinian people can fully exercise their inalienable right to self-determination. 
Thank you so much, Ali Amurima. He is our executive director here at the Electronic Intifada, and we're going to have um, a, a lot more uh, analysis and discussion about not just the humanitarian catastrophe on the ground in Gaza, but also the West Bank. Um, we're going to be talking about the role of Jordan, um, and we're going to bring on our colleague Tamara Nassar. Um, but uh, but. And we're also going to talk about uh, new uh, testimonies and appeals from some of the Israeli captives um, to their government, which seems all too willing to just sacrifice them and continue to carpet bomb Gaza. Um, but first, uh, Asa, why don't you introduce our next guest? Yeah, our next guest is Huda Amori, the co-founder of Palestine Action. Palestine Action, uh, many of our viewers and listeners will be familiar with. It's an organization which was founded um, three years ago, a little over three years ago now, um, to take action for Palestine, as the name suggests. So it's about direct action. Um, it's about taking solidarity to the next level in a way that uh, taking direct action against companies that are involved in the Israeli genocide in Gaza right now. There's um, all sorts, uh, their prime target has been Elbit, but there's been others as well. Welcome to the show, Huda. Thank you. Thank you for having me on here. Hi, Huda. Hi. Well, could you... Could you start maybe by, um, I don't know, giving your reaction to what's been going on in Gaza and then maybe talk about what Palestine Action has been doing about it? Yeah, I mean, um, it's hard to put into words, which I think you guys have been doing a brilliant job of, about talking about the reaction to what's been happening um, in the past few weeks. Um, you know, you see uh, people being slaughtered on a daily basis, you're seeing hospitals being attacked, people being told to flee to one area and then um, being killed when they go to another area. Um, it, it's just genocide and it, it, it's quite sick in the way that they're carrying it out as well. There's that mental element which just seems um, evil beyond the evil to, you know, warn people to go to one area, bomb them while they're on the way to that area. I think. It's, it's been obvious for many years, if not decades, that there's no safe place in Gaza. Um, I think this current situation is just highlighting that, um, you know, I, you see, um, bank, I mean, thankfully in one sense, I don't have direct family in Gaza, but I have plenty of friends who have lost their whole families um, in, in these recent attacks. And, um, you know, I'm sure that the grief and rage that we are feeling is being shared by many across the world. Uh, but in Palestine Action, we have been focused on taking direct action against Israeli weapons manufacturers. Um, it, our main target, as you said, is Elbit Systems, which is Israel's largest weapons firm. We know that before uh, this past month, they have been developing their weapons on the population of Gaza for many, many years, marketing their drones as battle-tested, parts of which are built in Britain, um, you know, they're the ones who are supplying the bullets that Israel are using. They provide 85% of their land-based equipment and the, the, the majority provider for the Israeli military. So we can trace back, not just to Albert Systems, but to many other companies 
who facilitate Elbit systems, who supply them and who work alongside them, who are um, complicit and are arming this genocide against the Palestinian people. And just recently we saw the Iron Sting missiles uh, being used for the first time. It's a new weapon. And again, they are using this as an opportunity to uh, test out new weaponry. And it's been leaving marks and burns that, um, that Palestinians have not seen before. Um, so whenever we're seeing these attacks, uh, we can trace it back. But also we know that they're using these attacks as opportunities to try and make more money off the back of Palestinian uh, Palestinian blood and to test out new weaponry, which no doubt, unless we intervene, they will market it on the global arms trade and we will probably see these weapons being bought by other countries in years to come. And I think for us in the Imperial Corps, but also across the world, um, where Elbit systems are active, where we have weapons factory on our doorsteps, we have shown in Palestine action and we are continuing to take action that we can shut these places down. Uh, through, through sustained direct action, we have shut down uh, one of Elbit's factories in a northern town in England. Their London headquarters as well and cost them hundreds of millions of pounds. And we're seeing this campaign now go global. But I think at this specific time, this is a crucial point in history. This is a crucial time where we need to harness the support for the Palestinian people and, um, and move it towards material destruction to the weapons uh, makers who are producing the weapons we're seeing being used against the Palestinian people. Hoda, can you talk a little bit more about that, um, especially as uh, we saw over the weekend, uh, half a million people were in the streets in London uh, alone, as well as places all over the world. Um, you know, people are really uh, motivated to stop, you know, these factories from operating to, you know, get uh, get into the gears of these factories and these weapons manufacturers. Um, how, what are you seeing in terms of uh, the rise in sustained direct action um, from from where you are in the UK? Yeah, so, uh, you know, just as we're seeing these protests grow um, to an incredible scale, we're seeing um, a massive increase in people wanting to join Palestine Action. We encourage people to continue to join us and want to take direct action against these weapons manufacturers. We, um, we've not only targeted weapons manufacturers in these past couple of weeks, we also targeted the BBC. Uh, they were sprayed with red paint to symbolize the bloodshed of the Palestinian people. And I think um, although that is uh, not usually our focus, we are quite focused on the weapons trade, we have seen how the media has been just as complicit in the genocide of the Palestinian people by manufacturing consent and spreading the lies of the Israeli military. Um, we've seen people climb on top of the roof of Halmet, which is a weapons factory in Leicester, um, which provides the parts for Israel's F-35 fighter jets. These are the fighter jets and warplanes that we're seeing uh, dropping bombs in Gaza right now. We can trace back the weaponry and components to many factories across this country. Um, at the same time as that action, we had other people blockading 
at the Leicester factory of Albert Systems, which produces uh, Israeli military drones. And we've also seen um, over 100 trade unionists blockade the entrance to Israel's weapons factory um, in Kent. And at the same time, we've seen people target Barclays, the investors of Albert Systems, and I'm sure I'm missing some of the list, but I can say that with what is happening and with the increased, um, the increased frequency and intensification of the genocide against the Palestinian people, I'm sure that we will see many more direct action taken in the, in the upcoming weeks. And I encourage those who are joining the protest, it is fantastic to see that type of solidarity, um, but to take it one step further and to take direct action against the Israeli war machine. It does sometimes lead to arrest. It does sometimes lead to 24 hours, possibly longer, in a police cell. But I think at this point in time, when we're seeing what these weapons are doing to the Palestinian people, um, it really is nothing in comparison. And, and to know that we are standing in solidarity with the Palestinians at such a crucial time. And also to see that we are part of a global movement. We are seeing people in the US, I believe, um, several people were just arrested in Cambridge, Massachusetts for um, taking down action against the local Elbit facility over there. We've seen activists in Australia also targeting Elbit systems, and we are um, expecting to see other actions across other countries. So I think now is really the time for us to directly intervene in the Israeli war machine, put our, put our um, bodies in the way, put ourselves in the way, because you know, we've shown that um, with two people, it took two people to climb onto the roof of a factory and it shut down for the day. With 500,000 people, there will not be a single weapons factory left in this country to operate. Could you talk a little bit more about the kind of repression that you've been facing as Palestine action? Um, I, I mean, I know you might be limited legally on certain things that you can say, mm. but um in general in the in the uk in recent weeks we've seen you know a real increase in the level of repression of solidarity in general um and i know that you yourself and and some other of your comrades have got a big trial coming up soon um so could you talk a little bit about all of that yeah well i think in general we can see that the state is doing everything possible to try and intimidate uh, people they're trying to change the law um and and it's it's it's, it's as, as if they need to meet a certain quota of arrests of people in order to please uh suella braverman and the state that's what it seems to be going on at the moment and of course to please the israeli uh, apartheid state of israel it seems and i think we've seen People uh, targeted by the media, calls for arrests, things like that um, have massively increased. But, um, you know, at the same time, I, I just, I, I think of this, all of that just turns into noise, if I'm completely honest with you. Like, I think if this was a different time, um, it might be feel slightly more intense. But I think when we're seeing what's happening in Gaza, you just shrug it off and you keep going because... Um, there really is no other choice at this moment in time. Um, I and seven others have a trial coming up in London in two weeks. Um, I'm being trialed for blackmail, uh, conspiracy to burgle and destroy Albert Systems. 
Um, and this is, this is, it Could you explain what the, the blackmail was? Yeah, so basically it's covering the first six months of Palestine action and all of the actions that we did, which was quite a lot. Um, and I basically put it like they're charging us for the actions and then they just put blackmail on top. They're basically saying that we, by demanding the landlord of Albert Systems, the uh, landlord of their London headquarters, which isn't there anymore, by demanding that they evict Albert um, and by saying that we're going to continue to take action against them until they do, that we are um, that we are being charged for blackmail for that purpose. But the thing is with blackmail, it's only three of us that have been charged, um, another co-founder and someone else, of we are in this trial, is that they can not only imprison you for quite a long time, but they can also ban you from campaigning for life. So even after you serve a prison time, they can, if you sign a petition, if you do any types of campaigning, they can basically recall you to prison. So it's obviously extremely politically motivated charge. It did come after they had a meeting, um, after Dominic Raab, Foreign Secretary, had a meeting with the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs and Benny Gantz, Israel's Defense Minister, um, at the time. And they slapped us with these blackmail charges. But um, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm, we're more than ready to fight these charges in court. I think it's a joke. Um, and I think that the only guilty party in these cases is the uh, Israeli weapons trade and the state for acting on their behalf to protect them against protecting the rights of their own citizens. Hoda, yeah, I'd I just like to ask you, you, uh, I mean, two things. You obviously are going to fight these charges. You're going to go into court and defend yourselves. And uh, I guess you're going to say something like your actions are justified mm -hmm. because they're uh, meant to prevent a much bigger crime that uh, you may be smashing windows and smashing doors. Or I, I don't know exactly what, what you know, mm -hmm. I've seen some of the videos uh, and some of them you're quite determined to take apart these factories. And, and in, in some cases, I don't mean you, but members mm -hmm. of Palestine Action I've seen videos where they've uh, broken computers and broken other equipment, uh, mm -hmm. which under normal circumstances uh, would be considered a crime if it's not your property. But mm -hmm. your defense is that, that uh, you're preventing a bigger crime, which is the murder of Palestinian civilians. And, yeah. and, that, and that defense, if I understand it correctly, has actually worked in a number of these trials previously where members of Palestine Action have been brought forward. And of course, I'm, I'm assuming you would hope that the, the jury or the judge in, in your upcoming trial, which, which we will be covering for the Electronic Intifada, that, your, that the jury or the judge will agree with you and will find you not guilty of these various charges that are politically motivated. But you are prepared to go to prison if, if you don't succeed. Is that, is that, I mean, is that, the, is that the determination you have to, to carry through this mission? Um, yes, I mean, I think you said it out perfectly. I can't 
go into too much detail about the defences, but I would say that, you know, legally in this country, you are allowed to, there are defences to criminal damage. So, for example, if a, if a house was burning down and you had to smash the window to save people inside, um, you wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't be criminal damage because you did it to save lives. Um, it's the same principle if you see a child trapped in a house, you bang down the door. The door is immaterial to the um, to the cost of, you know, to, to saving human life. So, in general, it's about proving that these actions were justified, which is extremely easy um, easy to do, and, that's, and that is how we will fight these charges. And, I'm ju and just to be clear, I'm not, I'm just speaking based on the yeah. public reports I've, I've read and that we've we've published about the previous trials. I'm not conveying any particular knowledge about your upcoming trial. I'm just talking about the general mm -hmm. principles involved, although, of course, we will be following it uh, and uh, um, hoping that you will, of course, succeed in, in this very important um, resistance to what is a death machine. Uh, you know, it, it, it all it happens in nice looking office buildings that look very neat and they've got lovely car parks and uh, mm -hmm. landscaping and so on. But what's going on there is is the planning for blowing babies apart and blowing children apart, this kind of images we see from Gaza. Is, is that what is happening in these buildings? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can't compare, um, you know, throwing some paint or smashing um, some machinery to the destruction and the spilling of Palestinian blood constantly. That's the Elbert System's whole business model is built on the destruction of Palestine. And by taking direct action, we aim to stop that. And we have seen just a few weeks ago um, an activist who um, caused uh, over £500,000 worth of damage to Arconic, who supplied materials for Israel's fighter jets was found not guilty by a jury in Wolverhampton based on um, several different points, but based on the fact that he acted to save lives and that he acted to prevent the much greater damage that was happening um, in Palestine and specifically in Gaza. Um, but I think either way, we are, we are aware that what we, have, we have not done anything wrong, uh, not morally and arguably not legally. Um, but, but either way, we are prepared to go to prison for the actions that we have taken, um, because in comparison to what is happening to the Palestinian people, um, you can't you can't compare it. And and I think that throughout history we have seen that uh, that often by putting your liberty on the line is one of the only ways that we can change um, this constant complicity that is going on between um, in this case between Britain and the colonization of Palestine. And if it means that we have that they that we have to go to prison to shut down these weapons factories, and so be it. But we will fight them at every single point, and we will aim to prove that Albert Systems are the real criminals in this case, um, not us. And I genuinely believe that a jury of normal people, um, you know, of, of the general public, will not side with the interests of a powerful Israeli arms uh, manufacturer, but will side with the interests of um, of normal people and of the oppressed and will understand why we would take the necessary action that we take to stop them. And I think it's also important to put it in the context of a country and a political system 
where there is really no democratic process to bring viable change between their ongoing complicity um, with, with the genocide of the Palestinian people. We've done it all, we've, we've tried it all, the lobbying, the petitions, the protests, and when you're seeing people being massacred, I think it's the, it's the human thing to do to put, put yourself um, you know, slightly on the line in comparison in order to shut them down. That's Huda Amori. Uh, she's with Palestine Action UK, and uh, I um, implore people to go to their website um, as well as Twitter. And there is now, as we um, had on last week, uh, Palestine Action US. Um, Huda Amori, we will, of course, uh, be checking back with you regularly, especially as this uh, trial goes goes forth. Um, thank you for all you do and for being with us today on the live stream. Thanks, thank Hoda. Thank you, Hoda. Thank you for your coverage as well during this time and in the past. Thank you so much. Uh, and we're now going to turn to our colleague, John Elmer. Um, we wanted to, to start uh, th this kind of analysis section with uh, talking about the news that's come out just in the last few hours of um, captives, Israeli captives, uh, somewhere in Gaza who have been appealing to the Netanyahu uh, administration to um, release them and release uh, the Palestinian prisoners, which has been the demand of Palestinian resistance groups. Um, Ali, do you want to uh, kind of situate us in what's happening with the, the prisoner situation and then we can... Yeah, I, I think we should actually start by watching the video that, that was released this yeah. morning by Hamas and is all over the, the, the uh, media, but we have actually subtitled it uh, in English. Great, let's go to that. אתמול הייתה מסיבת עיתונאים עם משפחות החטופים. אנחנו יודעים שהייתה אמורה להיות הפסקת אש, היית אמור לשחרר את כולנו, התחייבת לשחרר את כולנו, ובמקום זה אנחנו נושאים במחדל הפוליטי, ביטחוני, צבאי, מדיני שלך, בגלל הפרסה הזאת שעשית ב-7 לאוקטובר, בגלל שלא היה צבא שם, אף אחד לא הגיע, אף אחד לא שמר עלינו, ואנחנו, אזרחים, תמימים, אזרחים שמשלמים מיסים למדינת ישראל, נמצאים בשבי, בתנאים, לא תנאים. אתה הורג אותנו, אתה תהרוג, אתה רוצה להרוג את כולנו, אתה רוצה עם צהל להרוג את כולנו, לא מספיק טבחת בכולם, לא מספיק אזרחים ישראלים נהרגו, שחרר, שחרר אותנו עכשיו, שחרר את האזרחים שלהם, שחרר את האסירים שלהם, שחרר אותנו, שחרר את כולנו, תן לנו. Yeah, I mean, that video was released this morning, and interestingly, it was released without any subtitles, either in Arabic or English. So um, it, it appears to have been clearly directed at the Israeli public. Um, and... Uh, I'll just read you uh, two paragraphs or two sentences from 
a report published by The Guardian this morning, um, and it says the deepening IDF, that's Israeli uh, incursion into Gaza, came amid dwindling Israeli public enthusiasm for a prolonged occupation. Support has fallen from 65% on 10 October to 46% now, according to a study by the Hebrew University. We see a continuation of the decline in support for occupying Gaza, said Nimrod Nir, a researcher at the social science faculty. The shock we saw in the first week, the rage we saw in the second, are slowly moderated, and now Israelis care more about the hostage situation and are less inclined to enter a full-scale occupation. So I think Hamas is clearly aware of the debate within Israel and is playing on that. And I think we can see that in another video uh, that uh, of uh, that I think we have of the of Hamas military spokesperson uh, Abu Abeda. لقد جرت اتصالات عديدة في ملف الأسرة وكانت هناك فرصة للوصول إلى صيغة اتفاق فيه لكن العدو ماطل ولم يبدي جدية حقيقية لإنهاء معاناة أسراه بل إن قصفه الهمجي وجرائمه المتواصلة أدت إلى قتل ما يقرب من خمسين منهم حتى الآن ومن هنا فإننا نقول للعدو وللعالم وبشكل واضح ومختصر إن العدد الكبير من أسر العدو لدينا ثمنه تبييض كامل السجون الصهيونية من كافة الأسرى فإذا أراد العدو أن ينهي هذا الملف مرة واحدة فنحن مستعدون لذلك وإذا أراد مسارا لتجزئة الملف فنحن جاهزون لذلك أيضا Yeah, and that uh, also uh, over the weekend or yesterday, um, the families of the Israeli prisoners who are held in Gaza held a press conference and many of them have been saying very clearly they support releasing all the Palestinian prisoners in exchange for all the uh, people held in Gaza. So you see a a broad consensus spanning the... uh, uh, Abu Ubaidah, the spokesperson of the Qassam Brigade, and a large section of the Israeli uh, public. And that means that I think Netanyahu and the warmongering establishment in Israel are in uh, quite a bind. And it's in that context that Israel is saying that it's escalating its uh, ground invasion or ground operations in Gaza, uh, although what they're doing is is a little bit of a mystery and that's what i think john is going to help us try to to unravel what are you seeing john yeah i mean i think that that's uh, the a logical response from people's families that they want their people to come home and it's really unbelievable that the israeli state doesn't believe that that's a primary concern for them especially when the day after the war they're going to try to repopulate presumably these settlements along the borders, um, it's a really perplexing situation from the Israelis. The Palestinians have offered since the beginning um, that they would release uh, 
release prisoners. They've offered numerous different ways to do that. We just saw Abu Ubaidah um, say you can do it any way you want. Do you want to do all prisoners for all prisoners? We can do it today. If you want to do it in segments, we can do it in segments. Um, they've offered, um, you know, the parameters of the prisoner exchange are there. They were there for the Shalit exchange on the first day as well. And Israel decided to wait for 2,000 days while their uh, soldier was in um, was in custody. So, yeah, it's uh, it's not clear why Israel is sacrificing all of these people, these soldiers um, and civilians. Um, why they're sacrificing them over a ground operation that hasn't um, really begun and really only involves, at this point, uh, massacres from the air. There's the possibility, even if Israel's ground operation is their plan, there's the possibility to exchange prisoners um, b- before you kill them, which is mm-hmm. what um, they, according to Abu Ubaidah, and not surprisingly, considering they're killing everybody else in these bombings as well. It's not all that surprising that they're killing their own people in these attacks. John, if I can ask you, when you looked when you look at that video of the three women that was released today, uh, what can you tell from that video in terms of their surroundings? And it doesn't look like it doesn't look like they're underground as as far as we can tell. We did have. Yochebet Livshitz, the elderly lady who was released last week, who talked about being taken um, into the tunnels and being held underground. What what do you make of what you see in that video? What does it tell us? I mean, it does look above ground. Um, I think that makes a certain amount of sense. I think they probably have the prisoners um, spread out all over the place. Um, what you said about Livshitz, she said she was underground. Um, like you said, in a spider's web, and she walked for kilometers. And then she said she was held in a room with about 25 other people. So that's uh, another clue that they're not all massed together or that there's the possibility that there's large chunks, um, chunks like 25 people that could be released, um, you know, virtually right away. There's a, a, a parameter of an exchange where you would release the civilians and the elderly people and the younger people for the elderly people, the young people. You know, there's 200 Palestinian kids in jail. Just release the kids. Release the kids from jail. Release the civilians. Start the process. Show your country that you're not going to just throw people into, um, you know, into the abyss. Um, the parameters are there for the deal. I think the clues that we saw from that is, yeah, it looks like they're above ground, and that would make sense that 50 people have died um, if people are being held above ground because it's not clear that you would flee um, where you're staying with the prisoners. And so when they're telling people to evacuate and then bombing them, um, I think you can uh, assume that that's what's happening. Um, I think the things that they said that we've heard from the prisoners so far are that generally they're being well cared for. Um, the last two that were released said that they, um, you know, saw doctors, um, they're given their medications, and like Abu Ubaidah said all along, our prisoners eat what we eat, drink what we drink, they take care of them. Um, but the, the 
the sort of just like rage about Israel to just so openly say that they're sacrificing these people. I'm not surprised they're mad. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be abandoned um, for nine hours like they were uh, on that day, October 7th. And then when you're taken, the army's reaction is to say, we don't care about the difficult, you know, because from Israel's point of view, yeah, it's difficult to release Palestinian resistance fighters that you thought you put in jail for the rest of their lives. You thought you effectively killed them. Um, and now you have to confront letting them out of prison. But for the core of the state of Israel's ideology, um, to me, it's perplexing that they're not just getting on with this. Um, there's very easy initial stages, as Abu Ubaidah said, to do it in, in segments. It doesn't have to be all at once. Do it in segments. Show good, uh, you know, like goodwill. Allow, allow the elderly Palestinian prisoners um, who you want to die in prison, let them out and let the elderly um, that the Palestinians have. Oh, Why, yeah. These kind of basic things, to have them not be happening, I think is a real indictment of Israel. And I think there's a reason for people to be mad like that, to be abandoned and then to not even negotiate something that the whole world can see. Just do each for each. Do the children for the children. Do the elderly for the elderly. It's simple. There, there, there are that that does seem simple and does seem like the humane and compassionate thing to do. But then it would seem to me that humane and compassionate is not what Israel does, not even to its own for its own people. But also, I, I did see a lot of Israeli commentators over the past couple of days saying that that such a deal uh, where they would release. Uh, so many Palestinians would be a massive defeat for Israel. So it seems that that macho image and maintaining that sense of strength is more important than the welfare of Israel's citizens. They will always look for a way to make Israel look aggressive and powerful and strong rather than actually do what's best for its people. But why, why don't we talk about some of the ground operations that we're seeing. And, and we also have a couple of videos that we can show. I think we should start, John, with one that was released, I think uh, it was on Saturday or it was over the weekend, by the Qassam Brigade. This is the, the military wing of uh, Hamas. And uh, it shows them, well, let's show it and then you can tell us uh, what it shows. I think we have that coming up now. Uh, and it, it, yeah, go ahead.
So again, that was a video released by Qassam, which shows them firing a Cornet anti-tank guided missile at a Panzer armored personnel carrier, which they say can hold up to 14 uh, soldiers. Uh, John, why would Qassam release this video and what are they trying to say? Well, I mean, I think that's the first, the beginning of the troops moving into the buffer zone. Um, basically, Israel has enforced over the years a buffer zone around Gaza that's at about two kilometers deep, um, which they should, pre well, previously, they were always able to operate uh, freely in that zone. But clearly, we've seen over the last uh, few days that they have had trouble getting into Beit Lahia, which is um, where that footage was. So there have anti-tank, um, anti-armor divisions within the Qassam Brigade's army. Um, so that's a, a shot from their anti-armor division. Um, on Israeli troop movements that we can see just from that video are moving through fields. And that's the thing that's interesting. Well, actually, about John, we have another video that was released by the... So the first one we just watched was released by the Palestinian resistance. Right. And now we have one that, that was released, uh, I think, yesterday by the Israeli army. So let's right. look at that. So you can see them. They're, they're in the fields. They're all surrounded by fields. So this is quite grainy footage. It was released by the Israeli army. And I assume that the purpose of this was to tell the Israeli public or the world public that look at us, we're inside Gaza, we're sending the troops in, we're doing what we, we said we'd do. Um, and they haven't, but they haven't released much more than this in terms of, of detail. But when you look at this, John, what, so that, that's the message Israel wants to send, but what do you see? Well, I see right there is a farm. They're making it look like they're moving into built-up areas, but uh, Beit Lahia in the north, um, they're farms. So they're moving through farmland um, on foot. And yeah, they're trying to show that their ground operation has begun because they've been touting this over the last few days. I don't see anything in that footage that indicates anything other than the troops are operating in the buffer zone. Um, which is one of the interesting features of the Gaza Strip is that it's a densely populated urban environment, but it's also surrounded by fields, which gives the Palestinians a significant advantage because essentially they have overwatch. They can be in the buildings looking down over the farmland that Israel has to cross through. Um, and so what Israel is going to have to do if they're going to move block by block is they're going to have to move into the fringes of the built up areas and then they're going to have to hold that. And I think at this point, what they're doing is just probing, trying to find where the anti-armor units are set up for this kind of advance. And as I said before, in previous wars, um, or, or even during the occupation, the Israelis were able to move to the fringes of Beit Lahia very easily. And what we've seen over the weekend, from what we understand, um, is they've gotten fierce resistance in the northwest as they're trying to come in from the north of uh, Gaza, which is one of the main axes that they'll try to travel on coming from the north to the south. Um, and then they'll try to come in from the east, which is also what we saw them move in from the east into the settlement tracks that we talked about on the show 
uh, last week. There's basic laneways, if you will, of movement that the Israelis can do um, into what used to be their settlements, which were um, what Sharon put in there in the 1970s as a military position. They were primarily military positions that they then put civilians in to give them a kind of uh, fig leaf of legitimacy. Um, so they're moving along those axes. We saw a video from Palestinians today of the Israelis moving in at Netzarim Junction, which used to be a main checkpoint um, in Gaza when the Israelis were there. It's where Mohammed al-Dura was shot at the beginning of the Second Intifada. So it's a flashpoint spot because it's the first built-up area. We saw footage today of the only other footage that we've seen from Gaza of an Israeli tank turn its turret and just blow away a car of Palestinians on the let's, road. Let's take a look at that in a second. Um, and uh, but, but before that, just in terms of context, so the Israelis say that they have gone into Gaza. This is kind of south of from the east, but south of Gaza City. And they reached the Salah al-Din Road, which is sort of the main north-south highway. Highway makes it sound bigger than it is, but the thoroughfare from the north to the south. And uh, let's take a look at that video now, uh, uh, if, if we have it, um, that was taken today in Gaza. And this, this is said to be, um, I'm not sure exactly where it was taken, but it was in the context of this Israeli incursion. So the civilian car sees them, turns around to try to get out of there. And, and then the, them away. the tank just blows them away, uh, which is absolutely horrifying. And again, underscores that there is no safe place in Gaza. Time and again, Israel has attacked people on their way to the supposedly safer areas in the south and of course continues to attack and kill hundreds and thousands of people in the south of Gaza in Khan Yunus and Rafah and all over. But what what does that video uh, tell you, John? I mean, you can see on that when the car is fleeing in that video, you can see to both sides that there's farmland. So the Israelis are moving through the buffer zone, which was previously their territory. They enforced the buffer zone inside the wall of Gaza historically. Um, and so they need to move through that area. They're showing us footage of them moving through the easiest um, possible area of the Gaza Strip. And um, you know, uh, the other things that we've seen, the capacity of resistance in the Gaza Strip, we've seen it from the north uh, to the south. In the south, we saw last week um, Qassam Brigades uh, repel an Israeli invasion um, on the beach in Rafah, which is in the far south. Um, we saw the uh, story of the Israeli soldier getting killed um, by a single uh, anti-tank uh, unit fighter east of Khan Yunus, which is just a, a bit further north of Rafa. We know that they exchanged uh, fire for hours with them um, to the east of Burej, which is in central um, Gaza. So we, that was in Nitzarim, where there was resistance um, as well. And in the north, there's been fierce resistance that we've seen from the Israeli side of the border um, 
in Beit Lahia that they've been engaged in fighting uh, along that axis as well. And we also saw last week um, Qassam fighters, naval frogmen, commando, um, naval commandos, come up from the sea in inside Israel proper, inside uh, an army base on the Zakim uh, beach. And so just, just from that uh, set of descriptions, we've seen them resist from the furthest southwest corner um, to the southeast corner, central Gaza, north Gaza, all along there, every axis that the Israelis have come in on, they've met resistance in the fields. They're not in the built up areas, which is the, a completely separate fight from what they're doing um, right now. And, and all but, through that, we've seen the Qassam Brigades and Saraya Al-Quds continually fire rocket barrages on Tel Aviv, uh, rockets and mortar fire on mustering troops. And the reason they can do that is because, according to the Israelis, according to the IDF Gaza Division deputy commander, there's more than 1,000 rocket launching sites that are buried underground and are connected and can be reloaded from the tunnel apparatus. And so the ability to resist um, it, it has been constant. The Israeli alarms go off um, are going off constantly. The ability to resist is there even over this weekend, which we talked about, was this brutal communications shutdown that was accompanied by the worst aerial bombardment and artillery shelling strikes, according to the United Nations, of this entire brutal war, which seems incredible that we keep saying that it gets worse and worse. But to cut off power um, and then to subject the population to this brutal attack and all throughout it, there was rocket fire, there was resistance. Um, and so none of these tactics appear to, to be working other than but, to horrify people. John, the, the Israelis do claim that uh, they entered into built up areas and they claim that they attacked 600 so-called uh, terrorist targets uh, recently, and this is just, I believe, in the context of the North, and they claim they killed dozens of Hamas fighters and attacked anti-tank um, uh, rocket firing posts and uh, rocket launching positions and so on. Uh, are you suggesting that Israel might not be telling the truth? Is that even something we could consider? I mean, they said today that they that they hit 30 uh, Qassam fighters that were mustering, uh, that were all together, which did, seems like unlikely uh, uh, that they would do something like that. Well, it, they may it, have Qassam fighters that. doesn't make any sense. We well, saw them on October 7th go into Israel like single file. Um, they're a professional trained army. They're not going to be all 30 of them in one building they're well, not going into urban then, i mean I, I i don't i'm not making light of this they probably killed another family yeah. and then said that it was 30 yeah. fighters uh, let's throw up this uh washington post story that uh came out over the weekend and and that we looked at uh, this came out yesterday and i mean basically it says that israel is launching this this ground operation that they know basically it says it's in stages but it's all shrouded in secrecy they're going 
gradually, they're going area by area, and it, it gives the impression that um, there is a plan here. I know you read it, John. Were you impressed by this uh, Israeli plan? Did, when you read this, did you think, oh my goodness, uh, they've really got something here? What did you make of it? No, I mean, the, the, the plan, right, involves going block by block because they've promised to annihilate Hamas. So the only thing that we're seeing is um, them tiptoeing into the buffer zone uh, on the outside of the built-up areas. And the fight isn't going to be in those buffer zone areas. It wouldn't, it's not useful for uh, Palestinians to, first of all, to expose their tunnels in that area um, when you have just open fields, what they're waiting for, the Palestinians are waiting for them to come into the built up areas where uh, the uh, entire environment of conflict changes. You start to have four dimensions of fighting right above you uh, on the street level below. And and the Palestinians have shown the capacity um, to, to have a, a, a miniature air force that they use suicide drones. Um, they struck. Um, an Israeli troop gathering with a suicide drone yesterday, and the Israelis confirmed that. Um, the plan that the Israelis have, like until we see them fighting day after day in in urban, surrounded by buildings, um, with all of their armor in there, we're, we haven't seen. We're looking at, at those troop columns. We're looking at at maximum twelve. We saw in that one. Uh, anti-tank missile shot um, there to in order to do the plan that they're saying that they have to do they need thousands of troops on the ground on foot walking beside the tanks. so when we start seeing footage of tanks in urban areas with soldiers walking beside it um, that's when the beginning of the ground war happens what we're seeing right now is Israeli maneuvers in the buffer zone that is the territory that Israel created. Um, the point of the buffer zone is to make sure that Palestinians can't set up um, defensive positions in the buffer zone. The point of it is to push the rocket fire and mortar fire back two kilometers from the border and allow Israeli troops to move in that territory. So the entire design of the buffer zone was created by Israel as a defensive uh, posture for their offensive operations. And so if they were unable to operate in the buffer zone, it would be uh, absurd because it's their territory. Like the March of Return uh, in 2018, 2019, when they were uh, lying, the, it's, the snipers would lie up on the hillside and just shoot people um, that came into that buffer zone because it's a massive uh, open field. Um, but what they're promising is urban warfare in the built-up areas, um, and none of that has not happened in these. Well, uh, let me let me days. put let me put another scenario to you that I've seen bandied about as a possibility. Again, Israel isn't telling any of us what its plans are, but we see analysts putting around all these different ideas. So, one thing I've seen suggests that they that the Israelis actually won't necessarily go into the center of Gaza City. Um, they will try to surround Gaza City. Obviously, they can do that from the west, from the sea, pretty easily. 
they can do that to some extent. I to mean, some extent. The yeah. Palestinians have uh, defenses all along yeah. the sea. So we well, saw yesterday that Shati camp was right. the target because, on Friday. Yeah, but bear with me with this. So okay, the sorry. idea is that they, that, they, that they can surround Gaza from the west, from the sea. They can surround it from the east because obviously the Israeli border is on the east and they can block it off from the north because the Israeli border is there as well. Um, so really the, the main problem for Israel is, uh, is blocking Gaza City off from the south, which means basically driving through the center of Gaza towards the sea and, block, and then dividing Gaza north to south. And basically then you have uh, surrounded Gaza City and the north of Gaza and blocked them off. And then you don't actually have to uh, go and fight street by street or building by building in Gaza City. You just besiege it for months because even if the Qassam and the resistance have supplies for months, eventually their supplies will run out, their rockets, their uh, um, munitions, their fuel or whatever it is. So the Israelis will just wait it out for months until they have exhausted Hamas that way. So that, that's another scenario. Again, this hasn't come from any Israeli official source. It's just things I'm seeing uh, talked about. Does that make any sense to you? Well, it's also important to note that Israel has a military censor. So it's not even like a journalist that's down on the border can be like, oh, I'm seeing this troop movement and then report it like in most countries. In Israel, that's illegal. You'll go to jail for doing that. So the military censor controls all information. Israel has evacuated the entire south and it's a closed military zone. So nobody can get even close to see what's happening. And so the messaging that we're getting from the Israelis is completely unchallenged in any way um, all throughout their society based on this military censor. And so we have to rely in some senses on Palestinian information, which is why the ground of offensive corresponded with a shutdown uh, of information um, coming out of Gaza, because I, I think that the Israelis wanted to avoid moving in on day one and getting smoked and having a spectacle of that this is going to be horrible when they're trying to rally their troops to carry out what you described, a months-long siege of an urban environment with 50,000 fighters ready for you to do that. Um, because it's not a secret for Palestinians, the axes upon which uh, the Israelis will move into the Gaza Strip. The, Palestinians in Gaza know those axes better than anyone on earth. It defined their life for years and years. Um, and if not the young kids, uh, then their parents told them about what it was like. So moving along those axes is, is possible. Um, driving down the main street and splitting off the territory, that, that's to be in the area to have that kind of a siege is going to leave their troops open to attack. And what we've seen so far is maneuver operations and then withdrawal. So they're not actually moving into the center and then staying there. And if any kind of tunnel action, which is what they promised, um, is to happen, they'll need to, to mass uh, a significant number of troops in one spot, guard it, and then get to work on uh, this tunnel uh, 
destruction that they're talked about. And while they're doing that, the Palestinians are, uh, you know, able to see where they are, see what their plan is. And that's part of the reason, like, I, I don't, I didn't expect for the Israelis to come flooding across the border, nor did I expect the Palestinian resistance to, after all this time, get excited and blow their most important defensive positions. So it's a bit of a cat and mouse at first, just to see who's going to be the person um, that first gives up their positions, because these defensive positions are well known. This part of the war that's happening right now is the part of the war that's happened in every other war that Israel has carried out. They can move into this buffer zone, and they historically could, move into this buffer zone very easily. They used to take up positions in Beit Lahia. That's what they did. They moved in and they took the first farmhouses and then they could have overwatch over the Palestinians. Um, but the other thing that the Israelis have to do now is anytime they're moving into the urban areas, they also have to have a rear flank cover because of the tunnels. The Palestinians have the possibility to emerge from areas that Israelis thought they had cleared um, and continue to fight. And so that poses a situation that's different than, say, the Americans in Fallujah, where they were able to just waste block by block and then move into that wasted territory. Um, that That's not applicable in the same way in Gaza because the tunnels um, can be used for offensive um, purposes in the armed struggle. The, the question is also, I think, I mean, it, it does seem to me, and I, I saw in the comments, comment someone reminded me that uh, Naftali Bennett, the former prime minister, has also put forward a similar kind of uh, plan where it would be about, you know, surrounding Gaza and basically starving starving Gaza into submission and starving the resistance into submission. But I, I also think, and maybe that's a discussion we can, we can pick up next time, um, but Israel's problem has always been, or its military doctrine has always been short wars on the other person's territory. I don't think Israel has ever, maybe with the exception of Lebanon in 1982, really had a war that has gone on uh, for months, uh, let's say a hot war. I mean, of course, this is, as some have called it, a hundred years war uh, between the Palestinian people and the Israeli colonizers. But in terms of a hot war where the army is mobilized, I don't think they've had too many that have gone on for months with all the impact that ha that has on the economy. And then, of course, the internal political situation um, and the demands to bring the captives home. So, I mean, is that a factor? Even if militarily speaking or logistically speaking, they could carry out this kind of prolonged siege to try to starve the Palestinian resistance. Are there factors in the home front or internationally that also run against that? Yeah, and, and I think that it risks the possibility that you just withdraw after this months of siege with nothing to show for it because um, the the promise, the military promise that you've made is that, I mean, Netanyahu visited his um, tunnel operation soldiers last week and told them that, um, that Israel needed them to save Israel. Um, and so to, to then just move in and siege and bomb from the air 
um, that it's not clear that Israel can find somehow to to spin a victory out of that. And you're right, the home front can't can't uh, endure that kind of um, long siege. It doesn't seem to me possible. But that siege also presumes um, a lack of um, you know defensive capacity for the Palestinians because to shut off and to encircle um, the area means you have fixed troop positions you're not you're not moving your armor back across the border uh, where it's less visible where it can be protected by your um, by your iron domes and whatnot and so you're talking about moving permanently troops in to divide up the territory which just leaves them vulnerable to attack and that's the part of this war that we don't actually know because we we haven't seen Qassam's uh, capabilities that have been built in the last eight years. So we're trying to use examples that we know from 2014. Um, that's a long time of tunnel building ago. That's a long time of having your own domestic weapons production industry that the Palestinians have had um, to create enough rockets to, we'll remember that they started this, this round of the war, was started on October 7th with the breaching of the prison walls um, and breaking out. So it's hard to imagine that the Palestinians that didn't expect um, them to advance, the Israelis to advance on these axes um, and their battle plans generally, there's not a ton of options for that battle plan. You have to assume that the Qassam Brigades are prepared for that. But there's no real reason to expect John, um, I'm sorry to I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt you. We 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 will come back to this. Um, Nora, I believe we have someone with us who can only stay for a short time. We do. Uh, we are um, very grateful for uh, Ahmed Al Nauk uh, to join us right now. Ahmed is the founder of We Are Not Numbers. Um, he has um, uh, just a, a few minutes, but we wanted to bring him on. Um, Ahmed, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. You're in the UK, but uh, your family and extended family and community is in Gaza. Um, can, can you talk about um, what, what you've been going through uh, the last three weeks? We know that it's just been extraordinarily traumatizing and and full of grief uh, for you and your family I'd, I'd also just like to say welcome Ahmed and yeah. I'm sorry that we are speaking to you in these circumstances yeah many people will know but not everyone that on the 22nd of October um, Israel bombed your family's home in Gaza and killed more than 20 members of your family including your dear father Nasri and uh, three of your sisters and two of your brothers and 15 of your nieces and nephews. And uh, it's uh, an unspeakable crime and we offer you uh, our sincere condolences. Um, but you've been speaking out. You, you have not been staying silent. Uh, and so we just uh, are in awe of your ability to speak in public uh, when you're also grieving such an unspeakable loss. Well, thank you, thank you very much uh, for inviting me and giving me this platform to talk about the situation in Gaza and to talk about my family and everyone in Gaza. Just before I answer your question, I just want to uh, 
elaborate that I am not the founder of We Are Not Numbers, I'm a co-founder. Uh, there are a number of friends and colleagues who started this project uh, with me and who uh, give a lot of their time and uh, resources to this project. So we are grateful to everyone who helped creating this project. And since you uh, mentioned uh, the project of We Are Not Numbers, it's actually uh, I'm feeling some kind of deja vu here because mm. We Are Not Numbers started in 2014 after I lost my brother and after I wrote about him for the first time. And uh, the story I wrote about my brother was the inspiration for We Are Not Numbers, the creation of this platform to tell uh, the human stories behind the numbers in the news. And part of me wanted, I was very proud of We Are Not Numbers because until We Are Not Numbers, we wanted to show the world that Behind the numbers that you see in the news, there are stories that stories of humans that deserve and they should be told to the media, especially in the, in, in the Western media. Uh, and I never Ahmed, thought just just yeah. to, so people know, we are not numbers. Is a project that you co-founded that nurtures young writers in Gaza to write their stories and to write what is going on and to publish it and it's been an incredibly successful project and many of the writers that we publish from Gaza at the Electronic Intifada have come to us through We Are Not Numbers so it, it's been an absolutely fantastic way to put the voices of people in Gaza front and center and to share them with the world so it's it's a great thing. Thank you, thank you for these words. Um, so yeah, I'm um, I'm feeling some uh, sense of déjà vu right now because what happened in 2014 uh, led me to write a story about my brother, and we wanted to show the world that behind these numbers there are people who have stories that that should be told. And then uh, now in 2023, I'm not losing one brother; I'm losing 21 family members, including my father my two brothers, uh, my three sisters, and um, all their children. So I have three sisters who were at our home and they lost all their children. So just to give you a sense of what happened in uh, in October uh, 2020, my home is in Deir al-Balah, and Deir al-Balah is relatively a calm area. Usually there is not a lot of bombing. And my house is in the center of Deir al-Balah, the downtown. And three of my sisters who were already married came to my house because they wanted to seek refuge in our home because it's safer. So they left their homes in order to come to our home for their safety. And then in October, to, uh, in October the 22nd, the Israelis bombed my home. My home is uh, consisted of four flats, one for myself, one for my father, one for my uncle, and one for my brother. And then this video that you're showing, it shows the remains of my house, which is some rubble. It's, uh, this is, what you're seeing in this video is the house in which I was raised, uh, in the house in which I brought, I was brought up, and all of my brothers and sisters were brought up. So my father, two brothers, three sisters, one cousin, and 14 of their children were in this home. They were peaceful, they were lovely, they were kind, they never... They were never a threat to, to, to the Israelis. They never fired missile around this house. There were ne never any military access in our, uh, exercise in our house. And it was bombed for no reason, for no justification whatsoever. 
In this, in this picture, there is my father, two of my brothers, my sister, and her children. All of them were killed. And uh, in the different circumstances, I would be taking so much time to grieve my family. Uh, it, it's been a week since I lost my family, and I should be grieving. But unfortunately, looking at the circumstances in Gaza and thinking about all the people who are living under the bombardment in Gaza, I, for a moment, I forgot about my family, and now I'm thinking about the 2.2 million people who are living in Gaza. 1.1 million of them are children, children who are like my nieces and nephews, the 14 of them who Israel killed without any justification, without any justification, all of them were killed. You look at them, they were kind, they were peaceful, they were lovely. My brother, my younger brother, Yes, so this is a, a picture of three of my nieces and nephews. Uh, three of them are uh, the daughters of my sister, Aya. So Aya is married and she has three children. These are her children, Tamim, Muhammad, and, uh, and Malak. So Malak was the only one who survived in this bombing, but she, was, she, she survived with severe burns, uh, 50%, and then she was taken to the ICU. And then after one day, they had to take her off because it was needed for more urgent cases. And then she eventually succumbed to her wounds and, and now she, she joins the 13 other nieces and nephews that I lost. So the number is 14. Malik was very intelligent, very kind, very lovely. Uh, she came to my sister after five years of trying to have a, a baby. So she was a blessing to her mother and father. Uh, the, the other two children, Muhammad and Tamir, they were the sweetest, the kindest, Kids, they were kids, and this is the recent picture. They were kids, and they were killed. And I don't know, all of this time, I I would just think, why would Israel bomb a house that has 15 children in it, that has an old man? My father was born in 1948. This is my father. He's 75 years old. And as I said in this tweet, he was an eyewitness to every single atrocity that Israel committed against us since its establishment. And can you imagine, he was born only a few months after the Nakba, and he lived all of his life, 75 years, under occupation, under wars, under collective punishment, under siege. He lost his, his son uh, in 2014, and then he lost his wife in 2020. My mother died, not because of a bombing, but was I would say she was killed by the Israelis because they did not allow her to have a treatment from cancer. She was struggling with cancer for two years, and no matter how hard we tried to get her a permit to receive her chemotherapy from the West Bank, in the West Bank, the Israelis never gave her the, the permit until it was too late. So they gave her the permit, and but, but it was too late when I called the doctors in Jerusalem. They told me she could have been cured, but you sent her to us so late. So this is the life that we're going through, and this is one thing that I always try to emphasize on. Our story, our struggle did not start from the 7th of October. It started 75 years ago and more, 106 years ago since the Balfour Declaration, in which, in which Balfour, the UK, gave Israel, the Zionists, uh, the right to live and exist in our homeland without any with a disregard to the Palestinian people, to the indigenous people. Not only that, but they also made us, made us a minority, people without any civil rights, without, without, without freedom, without liberty, without sovereignty over their land. And ever since we have been struggling, struggling, and wars and besiegement and collective punishment and 
many, many other crimes. So this is the story of my family and every one of my family. Uh, I mean, in 2014, when Israel hit my brother, I, I never got tired of telling people here in the UK and America and all over the world about the story of my brother and how that led to the creation of We Are Not Numbers. But now I have another 21 family members who each, each one of them have a story that needs to be told. And right now, it's not a, a time for weakness. It's not uh, the right time to, to, to grieve and take my time with uh, crying over, over them. Now it's the time to work. Because if we do not work right now to stop the atrocities that are being perpetuated in, in Palestine, in Gaza, more families will, will be losing their lives. More people like me will grieve for the loss of their family. So I, I, I applaud what you're doing right now, talking about Palestine. This is, a, uh, this, is a, this is something that we really need here in the West. People need to hear our stories. People need to know what's actually going on in Palestine, not just the condemnation, condemning Hamas and the hostages and all of this uh, nonsense. We need people to hear the real stories from the people who are suffering on the ground. And this is what you are trying to do. So I applaud you for that. I thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to, to, to speak about my family. And I'm, I'm, I'm telling you right now, I will never be silent. And I will never stop talking about my family. I will never stop talking about my brothers and sisters. Yeah, yeah. And father and mother and everyone. And not, also my, not only my family, but also the other yeah. families and other Palestinians who live under this bombardment, who live under this uh, cruelty for not only 17 years of a blockade, the collective punishment, but also the 75 years of, uh, of, of occupation, of, uh, of besiegement, of uh, uh, settlement expansion, and all of these atrocities. Ahmed. So, yes. Ah, sorry, I, I wanted to ask you uh, where your family is from originally, before the Nakba. Um, can you talk a little bit about the origins of your family and, um, and that, so, some of that history? So my mother came from Berisaba. That's what you call now Beersheba, what they call it. It's, uh, she came from Berisaba and she lived in, in, in Gaza after that. My father's family, my grandfather used to live in Gaza and in Yaffa as well. My grandmother is from Yaffa. Uh, so we had the properties in Yaffa and we used to live in Yaffa. And then they, they came to Gaza and they settled in Gaza. And this is actually an important point that you have raised. Gaza, 70% of the, of the population in Gaza are not from Gaza. They are from towns and cities that Israel uh, ethnically cleansed in the 1948 and then we came to Gaza. So you're talking about over 1.4 million Palestinian refugees living in the Gaza Strip. Uh, and the 7th of October is not the first uh, incident. Oh, it's not. Uh, it's not where the clock started. It's our story began 75 years ago, and we are still. You know, we're talking about one 1.4 million people who lived uh, who live in Gaza who are actually not from Gaza, and they have been uh, trying to. They have been fighting and struggling in order to get the, the basic uh, human necessities and the basic freedoms that every other human person should enjoy. Uh, 70 70 percent of the Palestinians in Gaza are not from Gaza. They are refugees who are forced to live in Gaza because of the ethnic cleansing that happened because of the ethnic cleansing that happened to them 75 years ago. Yeah. Ahmed, uh, I think part of Israel's cruelty is that um, 
there is no time, as you said, there is no time to grieve because it's one atrocity after another. And I think the latest figures from the health ministry were that almost 900 families had been massacred in just the way that your family is massacred, was massacred. So looking at the photos of your, your father and your sisters and your nieces and your nephews, and it really is, it really does bring home the reality behind these numbers that, that we as a Palestinian people are not numbers. And uh, so for you to be able to speak about your family um, under these circumstances to me is just incredible. But I think they would be uh, very proud of you for being able to have the strength and to show the strength to do that. And I know you're talking, you're in the UK and you're talking to a lot of media there right now, which is one reason we don't want to take up too much more of your time. You've been very generous with us. But I would like to ask you what the response has been in the UK uh, from various sectors. What kind of reaction are you getting when you tell your story and when you talk about Palestine there? Uh, well, we have seen in London uh, some of the biggest, uh, biggest demonstrations that um, uh, hundreds of thousands of people took to the street every Saturday in London to protest what Israel is doing in Palestine, uh, to, to call for freedom for the Palestinian people and justice for the Palestinian people and to hold the war criminals uh, into account. And I have seen that the, the British people uh, at their heart, they're very, very nice and kind people. And uh, the majority of them are peace lovers. All of them, I think, I think everyone is a peace lover. Everyone wants peace. Everyone wants uh, freedom for the, for the Palestinian people. But I'm just disappointed with the, with the media in the UK. Uh, I'm disappointed with, with their coverage. Uh, when, when, when in, in the 7th of October, we have seen that they have provided a lot of cover uh, for the Israelis to do massacres against the Palestinian people. And I have noticed that in the, uh, on the first day of the 7th of October, when I noticed what the media is doing, I knew that Israel will do something very big. They will commit as many massacres as they could because they have, given, they have been given the cover to do so. We have seen them disseminate in false, false uh, information, uh, lies uh, about what actually happened, 40 decapitated babies, uh, rape, and so many lies. And when you, when you think about it, these journalists, I mean, I, I did my, my, my master's degree in journalism here in the UK, and I've, I've done my dissertation on the Western media coverage on the March of Return, and I've read the literature on the, uh, the coverage of, of Palestine from the Western media. And these mainstream media, some of them, not all of them, some of them knew that what they are doing is not professional. Disseminating lies like this without any proof is not professional and uh, it will lead to a, to a catastrophe in Palestine, but they did it nonetheless. And uh, I think they in intentionally wanted to disseminate information that would eventually give Israel the cover and the atmosphere to commit as many atrocities that they, uh, that they desire. And that's what I am disappointed with. I'm not disappointed with the British people. Uh, the British people are kind, they are lovely, and they are pro-justice, they're pro-peace. And I've seen them in the streets of London, hundreds of thousands of, thousands of people. And I'm just, I, I'm also disappointed with the political level in the UK. 
whether it was the, la the Labour or the, or the Conservative Party, the leadership of these parties did not do justice when they tackled this uh, conflict between Israel and Palestine. But I am hopeful. Uh, when, when I took to the streets, when I see the hundreds of thousands of people, not only Palestinians, some people uh, misunderstand the situation. These people who took to the streets are not Palestinians, they're not Arabs. Some of them Arabs, of course, but many, many of them are actually Jewish people who, 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 who are pro-Palestine, who are pro-justice. Many, many of them are British, white people. From, you go to the street and you see people from all ethnicities, people from everywhere. People have traveled all the way from, from Scotland, from north of Yorkshire, from Cardiff, from all around the UK. They came and they took the effort and they came to the streets in order to tell their politicians, to tell the media, that your judgment is no longer valid and the coverage of the media is no longer trusted and we do not believe what, what you're telling about the Palestinian people. We, they say that they believe in the Palestinian people and the coverage of the citizen journalists who are uh, now in Gaza. And I'm, uh, I want to say that I'm very, very, uh, very proud of the Palestinian people. Um, Every one of them right now in Gaza is serving as a journalist. Everyone is taking photos, pictures, telling news about what's actually going on uh, in the media. And that's what and the coverage of the Palestinian citizen journalists is now countering the mainstream media. And it's changing what uh, the, the narrative about Palestine. And that's why we have seen a huge change when it comes to the perception of the British people about Israel and Palestine. I mean, in the 70s and the 80s, you could fi hardly find someone who's, uh, who's aware of the political situation. You could finally, hardly find someone who is a pro-Palestine. Right now, I would say that maybe 70% of the British people uh, are politically aware about what's going on in Palestine, and they are pro-justice, pro-peace uh, in Palestine. So. Mm. Uh, and this is this is something I also wrote about on Twitter. I said that the disparity between the political will and the uh, the popular uh, will of, in in Britain is actually astonishing. You go to the streets and you see massive, massive crowds of people protesting for Palestine. And then when you look at the uh, political level, at the prime minister and the government in the UK, you find something totally, completely different. And this is something that we need to to talk about, actually. It's time for the, the British government and the politicians and the major political parties in the UK to listen to that street, to listen to the base of their uh, constituencies and to answer the demands of the British people because this is, after all, a democracy. And in a democracy, the people should have a say. They should have the ruling on on how the, the UK should uh, uh, tolerate uh, tolerate its, uh, its its foreign policy. Yeah. Well, I'm Ahmed, uh, no, no, we know that uh, we uh, that that you have to go. You are in between many media appearances, and 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 so we want to um, just thank you so much for for coming on to the live stream today. Um, we've gotten just a flood of comments uh, while you've yeah. been talking from some of our viewers and listeners. Um, just uh, thanking you. I think everybody is 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 here holding you and holding your grief um and um and your and your yeah. anger and your uh, anger and Absolutely. your anger and i just have to say ahmed that uh, the the tweets you've been posting with the stories uh, the pictures and the stories of your family have been such a uh, wonderful uh, memorial to them mm. and at the same time you have expressed 
your anger and your 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 defiant rage at what Israel has done to your family and to so many other Palestinians and the way you're turning that into uh, work in order to continue to try to stop this genocide is really something that is amazing to us and, and thank you for doing that and thank you for um, being an example for all of us in an impossible horrifying situation. Well, thank you very much. I, I would like to add something. Yeah. Now, um, you have invited me to speak about my family, but I'm, my family is not the only family that has been wiped out from the face of earth. Many, many, many other families, uh, many, many other people lost their entire families. In 2021, our colleague uh, Zainab Al-Qulaq lost 22 family members, and she was 22 years old when she lost 22 family members. Uh, and um, I excuse her, she couldn't talk a lot about it because it's a very traumatic experience. And so many other Palestinians lost many, many family members and they couldn't talk about it because it's too difficult. But for me, I, I, it's very difficult for me to talk about it. And I, I can't say that I am as powerful as I seem. I'm, I'm a very emotional person and I love my family. My father was... I loved my father more than anyone could love his father. I love him very, very, very much. He was the kindest, the most compassionate person you could ever meet. I always say that he's the kindest person that he ever walked this earth. And my heart bleeds for my father. My heart bleeds for my older brother and younger brother and the nieces and nephews. But I think this is also, uh, I think we Palestinians don't have the luxury to, to grieve enough for our, our parents. We have a responsibility now to talk. And um, I also have a responsibility because I speak English, so I have a responsibility towards the British people, the people who I live among, to tell them about what's going on. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Electronic Intifada, uh, the 24th day of the siege upon Gaza. And um, that's going to conclude our program for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Tuesday, uh, October the 31st, uh, 2023. Uh, we have been broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. And if you'd like to have access uh, to uh, today's program, all you need to do is go to our website, and uh, that is at um, the Pan-African Radio Network. You can reach the Pan-African Radio Network uh, by dialing uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website uh, at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, our program today uh, with the music of Harold Land and the Harold Land Quartet uh, from the album entitled Jazz at the Cellar uh, from 1958. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off. and Have a beautiful week. You who are interested in jazz, the name of Harold Land, ring a bell with you because Harold has appeared with all the greats of jazz in the United States. <laughs>
We are very privileged to welcome the Harrowland Quartet. <laughs> 